Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 95, and it is a very special treat. Today is September 1st, Friday, um, 2023, and um, super special treat. My guest today is Chris Atherton, the CEO of EnergyNet. Uh, so, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, 94, we're closing in on a, closing in on 100. That's uh, yeah, I, I, I like know. It. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a good uh, it's a good number. Great, I like great podcast. I've always been a, been a been a listener and always enjoyed it. Always uh, good topics and good conversations. So I was really pleased to be a part of it today. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really pumped about this. Um, so this is it's it's Friday. It's September 1st, 2023, and um, you know, I say this in, in front of every podcast, and I'll timestamp this, but we do kind of have, I mean, we're sitting at $85 WTI, so lots, lots going on in sort of the global economy and every in, in the global oil market, but you know, you and I met at, uh, you know, I just had Dan Romito on the podcast, met a lot of these people at this Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance meeting, and I saw you speak on a panel with, uh, with NGP, and this was not Chatham House rules, so I don't think I'm disclosing anything. Um, so there was a partner with NGP, and you were on this panel, and, and the conversation was very interesting um, and really struck me in terms of you know, some big takeaways, which I would like to get into today, which is access to capital and this massive sort of ESG pressure that's been on the industry. Um, so there's a number of things I want to cover in terms of you know, what you see as energy net. Um, and you can describe it a little bit to, to listeners as well in a moment. Um, but if listeners aren't aware, I mean, EnergyNet, you probably, if you are in the ENP space um, and you have ever looked for a deal or looked for assets, you're getting the emails. Um, I actually wanted to start my own oil company in the powder in 2018. So I still get these EnergyNet emails. Um, and these are, I mean, this is, this is a staple in the industry. So we will talk about that as well. But before we dive in, um, just in case you want to cover any of this nerdy stuff and get your input, I know you're a very thoughtful person, so you think about this stuff in the space. Um, but WTI is 85 and change. We're 85.46 right now. Brent is 88.41. And I caution folks a little bit there. I, if you are not thinking of hedging, you damn sure should be thinking about hedging right now because these are incredibly good oil prices and you could easily see this come off. You're going to see this come off. Yes, it could go higher, but it can, the, the risk of the downside is much worse than the risk of the upside. And 88 in change for Brent tells you that we have very thin trading volumes and that that spread is, is too narrow. Um, so I think we're seeing this September 1st, and this is Friday, right before the Labor Day weekend. Last week was you know, one of the biggest weeks where people don't work, where they call in sick um, conveniently. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you see oil, if you see demand, everybody's like, yeah, the inventories are down and demand's ripping. Yeah, of course, the demand for last week was ripping because, again, that's the holiday period where you see gasoline demand up. And again, this to me, this correlates to people are working from home, quote, working from home, but they're taking, you know, they're traveling on Mondays and Fridays, which I, I don't believe they're working very much on Mondays and Fridays. Um, and that's exacerbating all this. So I think we could see some some of that come off and we could get into student loans having to be repaid this month. Um, and there's some consequences that I think for that could be actually for the for for gasoline as well if prices are this high. Um, but with that being said, Henry Hub is 281. Um, so we're seeing a little bit of a tick up there. Um, we and copper prices are 385. I've missed that PTF. I'll I'll have to look that up and come back to it. 30-year mortgage is 707. Um, seven percent. So we're still north of seven percent. We have come off massively off those highs of 739 just days ago. That just shows you the 
incredibly erratic swings we're seeing in treasury yields and the interpretation of the market. If there's a little bad news in the market, it, you know, little bad news in jobs data or, or jobs data, jobs actually unemployment ticked up today. So, you know, treasury yields are rolling back and that gets everyone excited and thinks we're going to have a soft landing. I'm not sure about that. Um, I think there's a lot of question marks there, but the 10 year yield is 417. Um, so with that, that's, the, that's sort of the timestamp. We do have, you know, lots of talk about the housing market, which I would love to get your thoughts on and student loan repayment. But I think really right now, I mean, Chris, you have a wealth of knowledge. You you run an incredible business. Um, so maybe tell listeners a little bit, you know, if you can give us a short intro, um, not a massive long, you know, about Energy Next. I think a lot of people are familiar, but I'd love a short intro, what, what it is and what you're doing, what you're seeing in the marketplace. And we'll we'll dive in then from there about the rig count and activity and everything going on. Yeah, certainly, certainly, Trisha. And I appreciate you having me on. So, uh, so I'm a Chief Executive Officer of EnergyNet. I've uh, been with the company over 20 years. Uh, EnergyNet uh, essentially uh, uh, brings buyers and sellers together to uh, facilitate transactions. So uh, we do, uh, we have really kind of three main areas of our business. We have our auction and sealed bid business where we do some 2,000 to 2,500 individual transactions uh, annually. Uh, these are uh, lower 48 uh, U.S. Uh, operated working interest, uh, non-operated working interest, minerals, royalties, leasehold combinations thereof, uh, some Gulf of Mexico, some Canadian assets. Uh, but usually those assets are sub, say, 10 or $15 million in value per transaction. Uh, and then we have Indigo, EnergyNet Indigo, which is kind of our version of an energy investment bank or boutique advisory firm where we're doing kind of middle market transactions, higher value deals, more complex, more upside. Uh, so we do probably... Uh, uh, 20 or 30 of those a year that are kind of in a value range from 20 million to uh, 250 million dollars in value. And then the third area of our business is interesting. It's uh, we, we facilitate government lease oil and gas lease sales. So we work, we facilitate the Bureau of Land Management lease sales, University Lands in Texas, Texas General Land Office, State of New Mexico, State of Oklahoma, State of Wyoming. Uh, so really interacting in all the major basins. And because of these interactions, uh, or these transactions that we're facilitating, uh, we really, you know, you name a company and they've probably bought an asset through the EnergyNet platform or bid on an asset through the EnergyNet platform or sold an asset. So we really have kind of a reason and uh, an interaction with the full spectrum of EMP companies, large to small. So we you know, work with Exxon and Chevron and Shell and Total and BP, but we've also worked with, you know, individuals you know, that own minerals uh, that inherited from their grandparents. Uh, and, and the full spectrum in between of, of private equity sponsored groups, family offices, true privates, uh, and really gives us uh, kind of a one, a, a pulse of the market of things that are going on currently or, you know, a timestamp in, in time, uh, but also just kind of a reason to call on these and see their different drivers and motivations for participating, for acquiring assets, divesting assets, kind of their, their view on things. So a lot of the topics you mentioned today are, you know, front and center for us just really on a daily basis as we you know, advise our clients on acquiring oil and gas assets or, or divesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you, um, that, that I think that's why, you know, we, we obviously, uh, we actually got, we were chatting and we were playing blackjack. Um, fortunately that was fake money. Um, but we we're chatting playing blackjack and I was realizing, you know, as a, as a business, we have a lot of crossover in terms of uh, the Intel you you're looking at. Um, and you clearly are seeing a lot in the space. So given all that, you're seeing a lot. And, uh, you know, on your panel with uh, the 
young young man with NGP, you guys were talking about, um, you know, the questions being asked were, were fantastic in terms of, you know, asset allocation, you know, how much are funds and how much are businesses actually, uh, NC like NGP, how much are they actually getting in each of their funds and how much can they invest in oil and gas? And and obviously that, that had been cut in half. It was like 5 billion had come back down to 2.5 billion. And this was just, you know, in spite of, you know, the profitability in the space. Um, obviously, prices were not, at the time in June, were not $85 a barrel, but lots of stuff is really profitable. And I guess given all that backdrop that you just explained with your business and all that stuff that you see, can you walk us a little bit as listeners through, you know, your perspective of sort of the pre-COVID to now of how much this has changed? And I, I know I talk about this with listeners a lot on the podcast, but I think it'd be great to hear your perspective of how much, you know, from your perspective of what you do, how much this has all shifted from sort of the maybe not pre-COVID, but COVID to now, um, and how much life has changed and ESG pressure and everything has sort of impacted the state of the industry. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, kind of uh, rewinding time and even past, you know, past COVID to kind of, you know, the advent of of, uh, unconventional and shale and horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, uh, that really, you know, was a a whole new phase for the industry and unlocked tremendous amounts of value. Uh, the, the the publicly traded EMP companies were you know for a long period of time uh, really focused on you know growing production, growing reserves, growing their NAV, uh, uh, you know they're outspending cash flow each year, grabbing resources wherever they could, uh, and that was kind of a, a, a mindset uh, that that stayed with the industry until it really kind of broke the industry uh, uh, it, during that phase of say 2014 to 2015 or 2014 to 2018 or 2019 there were you know, the major private equity sponsors, the NGPs and NCAPs and Quantums and Denims and KKRs and Blackstone, Warburg, you know, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of, of dollars deployed into the space. Uh, they would raise funds, uh, you know, a $5 billion fund, $7 billion fund, $3 billion fund was, was not uncommon. Uh, had lots, they, the, the private equity team, uh, sponsors uh, uh, had lots of management teams. Some groups had, you know, dozens in a specific basin. Yep. Uh, uh, which was, was, was very interesting, uh, relatively smaller teams. It was a resource grab, you know, get out on the edge of Chevron or Pioneer or Oxy and, you know, a little bit riskier dollars, a little bit riskier acreage, a little bit riskier, uh, technology and, and, you know, unlock value and create, you know, great PUDs or create locations where they're, they didn't previously exist and then drill two wells and, you know, have, have room for 20 or 30 or 50 more and sell that to an upstream oil and gas company, uh, uh, but the music really stopped just, you know, the, the industry, the public uh, oil and gas industry upstream really, you know, burned a lot of investors and burned through a lot of cash and, uh, you know, destructed a lot of capital. Uh, and uh, that caused, uh, you know, kind of a little bit where we are now, it's kind of comes full circle. So, so many companies, uh, you know, they were, were never uh, really returning, uh, you know, profit to their shareholders. Uh, in any shape or form, there were there were exits. The, the private equity sponsored companies had exits to publicly traded companies, and, and that was a big win for their investors. Or there were uh, you know uh, public to public acquisitions, and that, those were big wins. But at the end of the, kind of when the musical chairs stopped, uh, what had happened is that the, the generalist investor, or large institutions, pension funds, were really burned by the by the shale space. They they gave that all that a lot of that. Uh, the the, uh, the goodness of, of what shale did it, it created low cost for consumers uh, in terms of low natural gas prices and low oil prices for an extended period of time that really juiced the economy but the investors at the end of it were kind of holding the bag so 
you know, what's changed uh, is just a, is a, a new religion in the EMP space where it's, you know, capital discipline, it's very moderate growth. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what you'll see now, uh, you know, uh, they're, uh, the, the EMP companies today are returning more cash to their investors uh, than they're drilling wells uh, or, or making acquisitions right. to some extent. Uh, so what they're, what, what's going on now, because of this kind of, you know, investor uh, sentiment that turned so poorly towards the upstream space, we're never making any money, uh, that's changed dramatically. And, and now with the, the EMP companies, generating so much free cash flow from their operations, uh, sending so much of that back to their shareholders in the terms of dividends or share buybacks, it's luring investors back in. Uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not happening overnight and it's, uh, you know, it takes a while to rebuild trust, uh, but it is happening and it's really eye-opening to see that, you know, while, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the energy space maybe only 4.2 percent of the s p 500 it's generating like two times the cash flow of you know pretty much all the other uh, sectors of industrials or telecom or tech uh, generating massive amount, amounts of cash and that's a lot of that's you know a lot of a big portion of that's going back to um, uh, their investors so it's kind of luring the investors back in it's hard to watch how much money these oil and gas companies are making right now and not be you know enticed to like oh i'd like to own some oxy shares or some Chevron shares or some EOG or some Pioneer. Um, uh, so all of that's uh, kind of creating this dynamic uh, uh, where uh, we're, we're kind of in a, in a, in a show me mode uh, for investors where they want to see higher prices. Uh, at, the, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned, you know, where we are with prices now. I, I think where they are now is kind of where the industry, like the executives at the management teams, uh, you know, Thought they would be at, at, right. at this time. That right. the, almost yep. all of all of all of 2023, they've I think the industry consensus on where WTI and, and gas prices should and Henry Dove gas prices should be uh, were considerably higher than than what they what the strip was, what the future strip was, and that kind of had an impact. There was you know some selling that that, that wasn't happening uh, because by you know, sellers were were wanting to hold on to their assets in terms of private equity. Uh, you know, some of these, you know, just in, you know, in 2023, in that first eight months of 2023, you know, Advance is sold, Forge is sold, Taprock is sold, Novo is sold, Black Swan, Piedra, Petro Legacy, Percussion, Driftwood, uh, you know, all of these private equity sponsored teams have exited uh, uh, to publicly traded companies that are in search of inventory. The inventory is, you know, depleting, the locations are going away. Uh, because the you know they're, 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 those are being drilled, uh, and you know uh, for an EMP company to have longevity and sustainability, for an, from an investor point of view, they have to have some running room. So they've been gobbling up all these private equity sponsor teams. The sponsors themselves are now out raising new funds, and you have groups uh, like Incap, NGP, Carnelian, Kimmeridge, Warwick, uh, you know Quantum out there raising raising new funds right now. But the, the next iteration. Once they raise those funds, it's going to be interesting to see how the how the game is played this time around because it's it is a different world in terms of what it was between 2014 to say 2018 or so. Yeah, that's an awesome recap. Um, and you've given I think listeners a lot to chew on, and me a lot of points that I want to dive into a little bit more because I, I think that's a it's a great recap and analysis. And I think there there's a lot of components in there, especially in the consolidation piece that I think you know I, in, from where the state of the industry is at. I think. Firstly, you know, I want to, there's a couple things I want to back into, and that's, I, I want to make sure we 
you know, eventually touch on this generalist investor and this investor sentiment and issue pressure because I think it's it's critically important because I I'm not with everyone in that I don't think that that much money should be given back to shareholders. Uh, I shareholders is one thing. Share buybacks is a completely different thing. Um, and I think when we're throwing this much money at eighty five dollar oil and share buybacks, um, that's telling us that our valuations of our companies are not appropriate. And the re you know the fact that we're all these publicly traded companies are buying privates when they could be buying out, say, a Devon whose multiple yeah. is crap, you know, we have to start asking some questions here. And that also begs the question then of, you know, what is the inventory story? I mean, I'm, it, you, we all talk about inventories and tiers, and I don't really, I, I've never bought it um, because when prices go up, not oil prices, gas prices are game changing. And we saw last year, you know, really that's what drove everything. And actually I was going back thinking about this podcast I was going through the production and the rig count and just, you know, want to double check myself because I'm always pretty, pretty bullish on the rock. And, you know, I was looking at production levels in the Permian. They've actually held up pretty well. We saw, you know, New Mexico come down a smidge. But if you look at the production, it's 1.7 million barrels a day for Leonetti County, just the Permian side of New Mexico mm -hmm. is 1.7 million barrels a day. Yes, the decline curves have compressed a little bit, but on a normalized basis, you're talking 1,200 barrels a day. So I don't think that that's not a horrible IP rate regardless. And then you look at the actual, the wells are a fraction of the wells we've had actually in that, in that, in that number. And then we start looking at where the rig count is. And we've definitely seen that come off massively. So I think there's, we can get into, you know, sort of activity and where we're going. And I think there's some serious implications for that. But I, I would like to talk about that, that sort of, when you, when you're thinking about that consolidation and, you know, obviously we had the big ramp up and, you know, the, the, Four, four guys starting an oil company, you know, tons of them in the powder, tons of them in the DJ. Um, I think in that panel you were on, you guys talked about, you know, everybody pulling out uh, private equity, really pulling out of California and Colorado considerably, um, just don't want to touch it. You know, that that's not a that's not an acreage thing. That's not a rock thing. That's there's inventory there. That's just them pulling out. Um, so I think that's a little bit interesting. But then you think about, OK, we got rid of the four team, the management teams, and we've, we have all this private equity. We have had consolidation in the space. And when I talk to clients, so when I work with companies or just talk to, you know, friends and CEOs in the industry, I think we're not really appreciating this, the impact on uh, service companies, that this is the impact that um, this consolidation has had just this year on service companies. And especially here in Colorado, I mean, it's, it's, job losses immediate you know when, when chevron gobbles up a company um everybody thinks it's great for the basin i disagree i think that the bigger the oil company um the less they're going to drill um the less activity they have and and i struggle a little bit with um i really do struggle with the, the mantra of the you know we, we tend to have a very positive sense of the industry you know bullish on prices i think folks have gotten lucky with prices going back to 85 right now, very, very thin trading volume, as I mentioned. And then I think as an industry, you know, yeah, all these oil companies are doing great. They're doing great right now because oil prices are great, but they're spending at $85 oil, they're, they're cutting back and they're spending like at 60. So what the hell happens when it goes to 60, you know? Um, and that makes me anxious about, you know, wh where does that, where's everybody at? And I just feel like I can, I can tell cause I'm, I'm technically a service provider, you know, how tight the damn industry is and how nobody's paying for anything spe you know i mean you you name the entity in the organization that can't get funding from the industry and it feels like the industry has left the the intelligence space they've left education they're sort of just like making money and thinking it's really great and i'm i'm disheartened by it but i'm also you know i i also hear this we're running out of inventory and we you could have said we're running an inventory in 2021 and then 2022 happens and we have 650 gas for average for the year and then everybody's wildcatting for gas and oh by the way 
lots of condensate, lots of NGLs, lots of oil and gas drive that helps bring up that oil. And I think we're just yeah. not appreciating how much of that gas prices actually really matter to oil activity. Um, and oh, that's yeah, a lot yeah, of what yeah. we've seen in 2023. So sorry, that was kind it, of a rant. Um, you no, but it, it, it is interesting, like on the, on the, you know, OFS and, and service cost and, and the, the rig count coming down because, uh, and it, it's a, it's a interesting dynamic because the, you know, the, the publicly traded companies aren't, I mean, they're paying for some upside and they're buying locations, uh, but, but, but not really, not in the way that it was done before where, you know, those acreage deals for massive amounts of money. If you look at some of the transaction multiples for the deals that have happened, uh, especially publics buying privately held or, or, or private equity sponsored companies, you know, the, the, the private equity sponsored company was, was mowing wells down or were mowing wells down and drilling away and trying to get their, their production to the, the utmost peak it could be. And then at that point, they're, they're doing a transaction and they're really selling for two and a half, three and a half times cash flow. Uh, oil and gas companies, because the where they the publicly traded companies where they trade, they can't buy a company at five times or six times cash flow. They have to buy it, you know, at, make it accretive to their their uh, their enterprise value. So, you know, if an EMP company, a public EMP company, is trading at three and a half, I mean, that's what you've seen. A lot of the deals trade at you know two and a half, three and a half times cash flow, and they're. And that looks like a production value, but the, the privates are, you know, drill, 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 drill. And then when the public buys them, they drop rigs and they, right. they keep, they, they spread that, they make that inventory last, you know, uh, at this, at this drilling pace longer. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, the tiers of acreage and tiers of things, uh, uh, will become more valuable, you know, tier, tier, you know, tier three and tier four becomes tier two and tier one when, Absolutely. when, when oil prices at a hundred dollars. But if you, if you do look at some of the areas in Reeves County or in Lee County or in Carnes County or, uh, you know, uh, McKenzie County and some of the main, uh, oil and gas oil basins, uh, and you look at a map, you're like, where are they going to drill? Where are they going to put more wells? If you just see where the drill, I mean, how many wells have been drilled in those, uh, really hot, hot, uh, active areas in, you know, uh, Midland or Reagan or uh, the counties, things like that, Martin County as well. As well. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm with you on that. And certainly when you look at a map, but if you go out there and you literally put yourself in, in Midland and you go out to the fields, it feels a little bit different. Like literally on the ground, it's pretty spread out. And you realize, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. there's a lot here. And I, I, I always say I think that's different because if you're with an operator in the field, they'll tell you the same thing of, yeah, you know, we have a lot of running room left here. And so I think we have to be careful about, and that's the trajectory, right? They can slow that down or whatever that is. And and I think more for, for oil analysts in terms of like, you know, how much are we actually adding? This is where a lot of folks, they get, get you know, gas analysts get it wrong all the time on gas on what we can produce. And then I think on oil, and it's just interesting to me of thinking of, you know, we may not have a, a you know, we're going to have iterations because, uh, you know, the privates will come in and they'll de-risk something and then, you know, the publics will come in and gobble it up. But it, and, and I think we're probably not probably not thinking of uh, not necessarily enhanced oil recovery, but um, refracking and just tinkering with existing wells probably a little bit more. We're probably not thinking of that quite the way we should. But right, no, your, right. your, your point's well taken and, and it's it's heard. I think listeners know I push back on that pretty hard in terms of, you know, I know we're we, we're definitely drilled a lot and we ha have declining. That's for sure. But it's interesting because I think it was actually I'd written this down in your panel. There was something that I don't know if it was you said it or the NGP partner. He said it was like 10 to 15 years. You know, the majors need that inventory. Eight to 12 years, the large like uh, 
companies like an EOG or something needs that inventory in the three to five years is your your sort of mid-cap guys. And I thought that was interesting because it's something I commented with with Dan Romito on the podcast last week is um, <laughs> is that, you know, it's just convenient that every, you know, these oil companies throw out. Um, and, and look, I, I buy and hold. So if people need to know, disclose my stocks. Um, yeah. I don't sell them, but I, I do buy and hold oil companies. So, small amount of oil companies but like an eog is funny is like they always have 10 years of inventory they had 10 years of inventory 10 years ago and now they have 10 years of inventory now and i'm not ripping on eog for that i'm saying that's that's reality right they add if the game is we need the inventory trust me a company right. like eog does it through organic what means right. and they're going to get the inventory so it's it's tricky to me to say okay well everybody else is buying that's also what the market's at that's also what the market's okay with so oil companies right. are very yeah. Very, you know, they're watching the investor pressure very, very carefully. I mean, they're crazy about the ESG stuff. This is where maybe we can we can get into the generalist investor thing a little bit. Is that you know they're watching this very carefully, and it it seems okay. You know, they don't get hammered when they buy these private companies. I'm pretty right. sure they they would get hammered a little bit more if they bought a, a public company. And partly that's because that public company, it's easy for all of us to Google that, and there's that disclosures up front. Um, I right. can't get access to all of, you know, that private company, all the NCAT back companies, the Oventive bought, I don't, I, you know, the average person can't just go grab the Intel and, and scour that and rip it apart. Right. So I think there, I know that's not the only thing, but I, I do think there's a little bit of something that, and we kind of all know in the industry, the valuations on this stuff is massive. Uh, well, compare, like what, 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 uh, NCAT, you know, what Oventive bought these NCAP companies for versus what you could have bought a public company for are, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. And I, I hear what you're saying about the EOGs and the, you know, the super majors and the you know, super independents on their, you know, uh, inventory. But if you if you do take a look at and kind of back to your generalist comments, uh, generalist investor comments, uh, you know, there are small mid cap publicly traded companies that, you know, they they are, you know, eager to grow, uh, to get become more relevant. Uh, so they yep. are they they've been on acquisition sprees. Uh, you know, Earthstone, for example, uh, you know, they they got bought, uh, you know they, they're merging or being acquired by Permian Resources. But before that, they had just acquired Novo. Uh, you know, a month before, a month and a half before they got uh, you know acquired by uh, or being announced to be being acquired by Permian Resources. But the small to mid caps, you know, Silverbow, Earthstone. Uh, others, they're they're trying to gain scale and get larger because you know from an a generalist investor or an asset allocator at a big, you know, uh, you know, uh, fund or you know, pension fund. You know, if they're going to allocate money to oil and gas or to energy, you know, it makes more. There, there's not that much differentiator between, or there, there's a, a big differentiator. Like, why don't if I have you know this many dollars to put in this bucket over here, or why don't I just put it you know in Exxon or in Chevron or in EOG or Oxy? Like, why would I? Why would I? What the money is not going to yep. the out being allocated to the small to mid cap public. So they need to grow. Uh, and, and they're, you know, and from their, from the perspective there, uh, you know, their inventory may be, you know, it may not be as, 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 uh, as wholesome as it could be, or from a, you know, looking at just a, you know, looking on a map, looking at their, you know, their, yep. their read pace. No, and that, that's a really good point. And this gets us to, uh, this gets us to this point of this, this general investor and this investor pressure. Cause see, I think um, I, I call BS on, you know, the, that's why they're not traded well. I think I think the pressure on the mid caps and even large caps and you know I yes I love Oxy you know I don't I'm just saying the market's like yes I'm good with Oxy and I'm good with Chevron and Exxon. 
that's because these guys are playing the game really hard. And it's really, you know, the ESG pressure and the investor pressure on the industry is massive. And the industry does not talk publicly enough about that and push back on that enough. And that's why, you know, the, my conversation with, with Dan Romito on this is this why I really struggle with all these ESG qualifications that we're doing when you don't have to yet, I think is super important that the industry does should do everything right. I mean, I'm third generation oil and gas. I care desperately about doing things the best way possible. But, you know, going, you know, throwing yourself over the barrel to, uh, you know, do more than you need to when, you know, you the whole point of this is if you give a mouse a cookie, they want a glass of milk. And I don't yeah. think all these, re you know, requirements are, are because they, they want you to succeed and do better and, and thrive as an industry. Absolutely not. It's to put the industry out of business. And so I think we have to be very careful on these disclosures. But the, but the reality is this, you know, when I hear about this, when I hear about this sentiment around the these oil companies in the publicly traded space, and then you listen to the earnings calls, and they're saying, you know, they're talking about share buybacks. And it's, it's like, I, I understand why you're buying back share, and you're telling the street that you're, you're not valued appropriately. And truthfully, you're not at $85 oil, the these oil companies are not valued where they need to be. But that is because the general investor and the retail investor and everyone has pulled out of oil and gas and no one loves oil and gas. And to me, that's because the oil companies are no longer telling their story. You can't go around waving the net zero 2050 flag around like crazy and talking about the energy transition. And then, oh, by the way, we're still going to be around 10 years from now and right. way more than 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years from now, they're going to be around. So this is less to me about inventory. That's a convenient excuse. It's, it's, um, it's more about your oil companies are no longer telling the street that they drill and produce oil they make a crap ton of money and this is a thriving market um and that they you know i know that they struggle in terms of you know in in the space of the you know getting in a, a management portfolio you know dealing with the issue investor pressure and i think that's why it needs to be talked about more and we need to shed a light on how serious access to capital is and that's something i want to talk to you about like you know so on the investor side and you know actually being in these portfolios and getting touted and you know, sell side analysts, buy side analysts, you know, it's really important. I don't think we have enough light on, you know, the, the issue pressures, the disclosures, all the stuff that's happening and the, the perplexities that these oil companies are in. And, but I do think they're not, they're not telling the street their story well of why you should invest in oil and gas. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I don't, I don't necessarily know the answer to it, but it is, I mean, oil and gas uh, companies really for as long as I've been alive have been vilified. Uh, and they, they, they generally are the big, bad, mean oil and gas companies, but then, uh, but it all seems to me, it just seems hypocritical that, you know, that everybody has a modern lifestyle with their, their Starbucks and their, you know, their, their vacations to somewhere exotic and, you know, the air conditioning and, uh, their, you know, you know, NICU units at the hospital or ICU units or hello, you know, all the things that we fully expect and DoorDash and Amazon delivery, you know, in 30 minutes, uh, uh, modern life, you know, is to this day right now runs on 80, 80% of everywhere in the world is run on fossil fuels. And, and so that there, there's a demand for it and there's a consumption of it by people, uh, by humans. And there's people in other areas of the world that would, would like to have a 10th of, of, uh, of the, the modern luxuries that we have. So it's, it's a difficult story to, to tell. Uh, I can see why, you know, uh, 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 political powers that be want to, want to demonize it. But I mean, if you, uh, you know, I, I don't think that net zero by 2050 is, is remotely possible. I, I think it's, uh, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, all those people are, that promised it are going to be gone by then. 
uh, out of their position. They can promise it now and wave their arms and say all the things that they're doing to, to move there. Uh, I just don't think it's realistic unless there's some technological breakthrough that, you know, we have another, I mean, I mean keep in mind, I mean, oil was discovered, you know, hydrocarbons were discovered, what, you know, 200 years ago or something that spawned the industrial revolution. It's not, you know, that long ago, uh, but right. it, it is the, like, the, the, there's not a, there's, there's a, a disconnect in reality on like, what we want our modern life to be and how we want it to be and, and how, you know, how that, how that comes to be like the, just the, the, the facts are that, you know, some, you know, you know, uh, you know, many things in our society are reliant on uh, uh, oil or natural gas for, uh, you know, making nitrogen for fertilizer for all the food that we have or transportation or heating chemical processes, uh, plastics. There's lots of things that just uh, that don't go, that don't work uh, with, with only uh, renewables. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's where I, mean, I say it a lot, but I think that's where the, I, the industry just, no one's gonna, no one's gonna talk about the, the real side of the industry in terms of valuations. And that's why I think it's so incredibly important, not just for, yes, it's, we all need it and we're going to consume it. And as, as somebody who's, you know, grew up around the business and analyzes it critically long-term, we're talking, I'm, I'm working 30 years out, 40 years out that the critical need for, for high BTU, high energy dense energy is huge. And so renewables just don't provide it. But I think actually from, you know, publicly traded companies, there's a role here to talk about your companies and your assets um, in a more productive manner uh, to yeah, really yeah, tell your yeah. story as an industry. And I think um, that the, there does need to be more light shed on to what exactly are these issue pressures? How do they manifest themselves? And are there ways to, you know, hit the metrics that you need to hit, but also talk to the average person? That's why I say it's so important to have voices like mine out there because there's just not that many people talking about this. There's really not right. anybody pushing back and not calling them fossil fuels because they are traditional fuels. They are hydrocarbons, they are crude oil, they're natural gas, and they're coal. And they're just not, no one's talking about the, the facts around them. But that being said, I, I, I want to pick your brain. Those are great comments. I want to pick your brain on, you know, we've talked about this offline a little bit in, in terms of capital access. And, you know, I had lots of light bulbs going off when I, and I'm, I'm a crazy entrepreneur and I want to do a gazillion things in life. But, um, you know, and I, I, I was genuinely interested in starting my, my own oil company and, um, and running it because I, I'm in a, everybody's thought about that. You love the business. I'm sure you've thought about it as well. Um, but access to capital is a huge problem right now. And that's something that, you know, across, doesn't matter what conference you go to, who you're talking to, capital access is a problem. And that's so interesting in spite of the, the metrics, how profitable the industry is right now and how it's a really, you know, I, I didn't like back in the day when we had all the hype and we had the massive private equity money throwing in and, you know, everybody and their dog had a company in the powder with a four person management team. And I've, got four engineers together and somebody came from EOG and we started an oil company. And then everybody's like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And you know, you, you drill the two wells, you blow them or you rip them. And then you're like, hey, we got a little bit of acreage. And that, that model I didn't think was very good. Um, it's, it obviously didn't pan out and, and it, we're where we're at. But I mean, in terms of, you know, I, I talked about this with Harold Hamm on the podcast in terms of like act, the resource. I mean, the reason a lot of these companies have held on to their acreage is because they know they, they know they're going to go back and, and tinker with these wells. They, they, they know this stuff, right? They, they have a long game, a long view in mind. And most people who've been in the industry do have that view. But I think capital access and alternative funding are really interesting to me right now is that, you know, it does seem that it's harder to get money. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. with higher interest rates, that's a real problem. But with the issue pressures and all these metrics that hit, it, the ability just to get insurance, I think, is one of them. But there's another whole element of people just aren't funding oil and gas. And so you have the private, private money that 
you know, people know about it, but they don't know about it really well. It's like you have like private equity, but then you have like, I think you have a couple different tiers of private money below that of like the real just wealthy people that understand the business or are comfortable in it and want to invest. And then you have like private offices and stuff. And I, those are great. I don't know if I'll even, even those maybe in Texas are, while they're wonderful and I, I support them, I don't know if they're deeply knowledgeable about, you know, the industry and the assets and, and everything. And I know you can get funding from that, but I'm wondering, you know, one, your perspective on access to capital, because it does seem very constrained and are there ways around this and will this evolve and that the access, you know, capital comes back and two, or maybe if, if we've completely shifted and if the ESG pressures continue, then we just don't have it. I mean, Exxon's mentioned this publicly now uh, and GP, meant, everybody sort of mentioned it. But then lastly, is, or secondly on that, is that alternative funding. Is there an opportunity, because, um, you know, we've talked about this, hands up, ready to run the company. Is there an opportunity for all, separate funding to say, yes, we're, we're critical, you know, we're going to analyze the, the teams and everything, but just alternative funding that's willing to take a much bigger risk on the industry and doesn't, um, is not subject to all those issue and investor pressures that even the private money seems to be subject to, that is willing to take a different, differentiated bet. Seems like there's a massive opportunity there. It's risky. Yeah. Opportunity. Yeah, most definitely. Um, uh, I mean, the, the oil and gas industry and upstream industry is, is very capital intensive. Uh, many years ago, uh, uh, Aubrey McClendon, when, when he was, when, when God, God rest his soul, uh, when he was speaking at a conference and he, and it always kind of stuck with me, but he said, imagine, you know, imagine you're, you're you know, we're not in the oil and gas industry. You're, 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 you're an entrepreneur, you're a young man or woman. You want to, you know, start a business and, you know, uh, your your great great grandfather says, you know, I haven't told you about this. I was waiting until you turned twenty five, but we're gonna, you know, we've had this this you know, family money set aside, and we're gonna we have thirty million dollars that we're we're you know, gifting you. You're inheriting thirty million dollars, and that's great if you're gonna start a technology company or a bookstore or you know a car, you know, automobile or something. But if you're gonna, you know, Aubrey McClendon was like, you know, Grandpa, that's only that's only two horizontal wells and like a thousand acres. You know, like I'm not gonna get very far with that. So. Uh, and, and that, that was with like gifted money, but I always kind of yep. just like the, the amount of money it, it takes, uh, and, and the, the pool has shrunk. So, uh, you know, the, the private equity sponsors in 20, you know, uh, uh, 2015, 2016, I mean, it was always, you know, $125 billion in, in dry powder. Uh, that's probably 30 or $40 billion in dry, dry powder from the private equity sponsors. Uh, there are strings attached that, that, you know, those are the, the sponsors raise money from LPs. Um, you know, it's been harder for them to raise money because of ESG issues, because, you know, the thought that electric cars are going to take over the world, there's no, no longer going to need to be gasoline used for, for internal combustion engines because there's not going to be any, uh, you know, things like that, or just, you know, the general feeling that oil and gas is, is tobacco and they're, they're, they're going out of business. So why would we, you know, why would we invest in, you know, Sears, if we can invest in Amazon. Um, and that was a lot for, in, 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 for many, many things uh, uh, respects is, is still kind of a view of the industry. It's made it more difficult. Uh, there are groups that, you know, you may, like fam there are family offices that are, that are, that are funding oil and gas. Uh, they're, they're not, it's not nearly as deep a well as other, other areas. Uh, I do think that, you know, with, the capital discipline in the space and the amount of money that they are generating, it does, I feel like it over time, it brings money back to the space uh, that if it can be demonstrated that, you know, this is the, the, the dollars, the profit that can be made from this industry, even though it is so capital intensive uh, in terms of, I mean, 
you, you look at a, a, a company like, like Hillcorp, uh, for example, uh, that has bought many of the assets from Chevron or from BP or from ConocoPhillips, uh, you know, they're a good steward of their other assets. Uh, they're not, you know, it's, it is a, a public selling to a private, but, you know, they intend to own those at Hillcorp intends to own those assets until right. the, they're plugged and abandoned and, and properly the, you know, the land is properly restored. Uh, uh, and it's th that they serve a, a niche in the market uh, to, to be able to do that. But, you know, they probably made some really uh, great acquisitions because, you know, we need to, the big company needs to get rid of this asset because it's, you know, the emissions are too high or the right. risk is too high and we're getting pressure from it from our investors. Uh, Hillcorp as a you know, privately held company, or you, you mentioned Harold Ham Continental now as a you know, privately held company can, can be more thoughtful and rational about what they're doing and, and not uh, bow to the, the whims that, you know, whims of the day. I would say that, you know, speaking out in the industry can be difficult for, you know, these the executives or, you know, uh, of the publicly traded companies or, you know, private equity sponsored folks that can, uh, they can try to speak the truth as much as they can, but they can also get a call from, you know, a big fund manager that says, well, you said this and you said the energy transition wasn't going to happen by 2050. So we're going to take money away from you. And that, that, that silences a lot of people or that makes people, you know, uh, parse their words a little bit more, yep. uh, maybe not speak as openly as the, what they believe the, the, the truth might be if, you know, if you're going to say something and you know, they're going to get uh, uh, penalized in monetary forms because of it, it makes, makes it makes it difficult. You have to be thoughtful about it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great point. And actually, to me, I mean, that's, that I, that's stuff that I see and feel every day. And I think that's why it's so serious that folks that can um, and that have the opportunity to, to be educating and talking about this, at, you have to you have to have these voices out there because the, the more that gets taken away than the knowledge about just how the state of not just the industry, but the economy in the world um, and geopolit geopolitics. And if, if it's not there, then people don't have access to this information and they can't make good business decisions off of it. And so if you let the International Energy Agency, you know, be the only voice for, you know, and, and publicly traded companies who have to toe the lawn be the only voice for the state of the industry and the realities of investing, then you're not going to have accurate information. Um, and that's just not good for for day to day business. Business. Um, so I think there are huge implications to that, but that's a very valid point. But does that, uh, so you didn't really answer the question and maybe you don't want to, and that's okay, but what, what, what the, is the, the, uh, the alternative funding, is, the, is there, op is there you, you, you made the point very clear and, and you're right. I mean, actually, I think even now with inflation, you know, we saw a drop in the ability to drill and complete a well during COVID times and slightly just after was fantastic, right? Until we had the inflation that we've seen across the world and everything. Obviously, we've had lots of inflation in the oil and gas sector. And folks like Harold Hamm have said publicly on my podcast that, you know, you need $80 oil in the powder to make it work. I, I think there are plenty of other companies that would disagree with that. Um, and honestly, if you're not, if you are not profitable right now at these prices, we're, we've got some problems in the business. Um, and that's maybe, you know, some tricky things there. But, you know, we've seen you could drill a well maybe for five to 7 million, you know, some really good, you know, wells at good prices. Now it's probably 10 million with inflation in certain places. Um, but, and so we know that, right? Let's just say 10 million to drill a well. And we, so your point about Aubrey McClendon talked about 30 million um, getting acreage, drilling wells. I mean, this is expensive. Um, you do have to have insurance. You have to have all, all kinds of things. So we know it's expensive, but is there still a, the interest, as we know, in the business is still massive, right? And we mm -hmm. still know from, we, we even know from the public side, given that how much is still out there, that there's a lot of this interest. So I, I just wonder if there's a role for 
you know, really being extremely thoughtful and is extremely articulate about, you know, what the what you're doing and trying to raise capital that is willing to um, to the is willing to push back and just say, you know, we, we're here for the long term. Is there is there ability to do that, or is that sort of just this isn't the time and place and alternative funding structure? You know, it's got to toe the line. It's going to have to go through. You know. No, I, I, yeah, I, I guess I, I misrep. Uh, I didn't understand it. Like, I, I don't think that there's big pools of alternative capital that are not public markets or private equity or family offices. I, I don't know if there's a deep in there. There's not a way to, to crowdfund th th this this industry. Uh, but but I do think there's. Like what, what the publicly traded DMP companies are doing now, uh, and it, you know, it came through a, a, you know, a painful place, you know, uh, you know uh, pain plus pain plus reflection equals equals progress. Uh, so like the, the new way that the, the oil and gas companies are being run that, you know, it, they are focused on, uh, on, you know, return on equity and on, you know, on EBITDA and, um, you know, and on you know, running a profitable business where maybe before they just wanted to get as much resources under their, you know, in their ownership as they possibly could at all costs. Uh, and like, if the oil and gas industry, as it's been doing for the past couple of years, if it continues to generate the cash flow and the profitability that, it, you know, uh, uh, that it has been, I, I think you have to have, I think it just, you know, people will, will see, will see the reality a little clearer that this is not going away. I mean, these companies, some companies right now are valued like they're going out of business. Uh, like they're gonna, you know, it's a blowdown mode that they're gonna be right. out of their resources in, in a short amount of time and they're just not going to exist and not going to have any revenue uh, anymore and they're just gonna shut down. And that, that, I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, but I do like this this kind of show me mode from investors, uh, you know, it's, it's there's been, or this year at least, you know, there's been a looming recession, you know, that's been looming you know, it's always, it's on the horizon. It's almost here. It's almost here. You know, it's almost here and it hasn't been here. And I, I do think the world economy has a lot of resiliency. Uh, and, you know, it's like, you know, it, we, we keep chugging along. We keep using more energy in all forms, uh, more than we did yesterday, every day since existence we, we, we have. We've not used less energy than we right. did the day before. We continue to use more and more. So unless that truth, I mean, the, the recession, the looming recession that's supposed to be here any day, uh, that that's what's supposed to tamper demand. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know people like when I drive around my town in Houston or, or go somewhere else, it seems to be more cars on the road and more strip centers and more buildings coming up and more neighborhoods, you know, going out farther and farther. It doesn't, things don't seem to be shrinking uh, to my eyes, but, but, uh, but that, that's, that's the worry, right? Uh, if, it, if it goes the other way, then I feel like that we're undersupplied and, uh, and then, you know, uh, yes, the, the tier three and tier four acreage becomes uh, more economic and, and prices go up. Well, and I think that's that's the perfect thing I was wrestling with how to discuss uh, with you with this podcast. I was wrestling with how to discuss sort of the, the economy and, and folding this with oil prices and, and sort of that with because I also want to talk you know, touch on before we close a little bit on activity, because I was going through the rig counts and thinking, you know, we actually have seen a considerable drop in the rig counts. You know, I was I was just baselining this and checking, you know, where we peaked. And, you know, U.S. rigs, the rig count in the U.S. peaked in December 2022 
basically 784 total rigs. Um, and as, as we mentioned before, you know, talking about gas prices, a lot of this was driven by ha- very high gas prices, which really helped the oil company. So it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily just dry, dry gas rigs going to town. But so 784 rigs, and that was not even, that wasn't even touching the pre-COVID levels, you know, mm-hmm. we were still under that, but that's a pretty nice peak. That was, and that was December. So it took a while for everybody to back off, even though we had, you know, the compression and oil prices. And so we've had lots of lags, I think, from reality of what oil companies understand the the market to be, which is, you know, think that's why I have a job, um, and and then where the market's actually at and understanding the economy and the trajectory. And this looming recession that the, where the shoe hasn't dropped, it, it is creating a lot of confusion, especially right now with 85 WTI. And we can talk about that because I would, I would love to get some, some loop around with listeners with that. But, you know, so oil rigs peaked in November, and that was, you know, 627 rigs. You know, they're now at 512. So just for that total rig, we went from 784 to 632. So we've lost over, we've lost well over 100 rigs in total. We've went from 627 rigs at no- of oil rigs in um, Baker Hughes, November 2022, now to 512. And now, you know, gas rigs peaked in September of 2022 at 166, and they're now at 115. And, you know, I, you can talk to folks on the ground, and yes, you've definitely seen activity, you know, really pull back in, in a lot of gas plays, certainly in the Haynesville. Um, but it's interesting. It didn't pull back quite as quickly, and I think it was hard for a lot of service companies to really navigate that with publics and privates, because as the public, as the privates were pulling back, very responsive to oil prices, the publics were adding rigs, they were adding rigs in a declining price environment, but they were, you know, they they're okay with 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 prices and and w- then we have the whole duck problem where we do actually have a lot of drillable uncompleted wells and then folks are drawing you know they're actually just completing their ducks or they're just waiting we've had a lot of people just sit there and wait and so the world post-covid is so much different in the oil market in terms of activity and you know ducks and um you know when we frack a well and that i think that's that's uh, it's it's increasingly hard for a the average service company to navigate that um also that's why i find fascinating because you know i love service companies love working with them they're uh but they're hard because they don't want to pay for market intelligence because um, <laughs> so they just sort of wing it um and the winging it, ne- it never really works but it's always fascinating because uh they're interesting companies but i mean you see this in the you see this across permian haynesville you name it so we've lost those rigs and then now if you're looking at this you're thinking okay rigs are rigs are you know tipping down and then you know the person would would say okay uh, average person on twitter average person market commentary stock market would say okay rigs are down crude oil inventories are down in the u.s look at that stock drawdown you had this week look at uh the the demand for crude oil prices last you know the the product supplied and the total demand last week um and that's great but um i'm not throwing cold water on on you know, I am throwing cold water on we, where we are in a recession. Most, most, uh, at least half of the economy is in a recession. What's what has skewed all of this is the uh, critical lags of, from a stimulus. So we've had so, we had so much money pumped into the economy during COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, twenty seven mm-hmm. trillion dollars globally. That that's still there's still a lot of that permeating through the system, and so it's kept artificially kept oil prices up. And of course, when you know you have a summer that's defined when people talk about this of Beyonce concerts and Taylor Swift concerts and the Barbie movie and everybody driving and spending and people again not working or working from home and driving. That's going to keep your gasoline demand elevated. Now in a recession, gasoline demand does not tank. 
um, diesel demand comes off a little bit and jet fuel comes off a little bit. And so it makes complete sense to me if people are taking off time from work or not working or have flexibility to work, that they're driving and flying a lot. And so I think we, we, we may have seen, and I think that's a lot of question marks in the system right now, of when you have inflation, it tells you that people are spending and moving stuff. I, but we have a lot of that inflation because we had so much of this money. So I think we have to be very, very careful, especially those of us in the industry, of, of you know the moment we're in now and seeing how things look okay um, to saying drawing that out going forward. And we also have prices being artificially held up because uh, the Saudis have you know willingly cut you know, they're, they're, they went from 10 million barrels a day this year. For the first time, they were going to be north of 10 million barrels a day on average in 2022. Now they're now they're they cut a million barrels a day. They're nine million barrels a day. They cut because they saw what was going on within China. The Chinese economy is in a is in a. Uh, I cannot underscore enough how bad it is. It is not um, beyond recession. Like they're. they're it's hell in a handbasket, and we keep hearing these stimulus measures that are coming out, um, but they're the trickle, and I think if you're on the ground in China, which we're obviously not, I think it looks a lot worse than probably we're seeing on TV. So it's, it, it is interesting to me to say, hear, you know, folks in the industry, the perspective on this, of, um, and I, I get very nervous when oil prices go to 85, and everybody gets very bullish thesis thinking, um, and it's like, well, what drove that price up? And if it's a if it's demand cuts, and a little bit of that is because the Russians said they were going to comply with some cuts as well. You know, demand cuts are what we saw in 2018, right? Or, or sorry, supply cuts. Supply cuts do not drive oil prices. So demand growth. Mm -hmm. To your point, it's it's we're not declining demand, and I'm not pessimistic on demand dropping. You know, off a cliff. Um, but driving long-term oil prices is um, you need that demand growth, and we can have to, you know we can have demand being steady, but I think it's also really critically important to think about the state of the economy, the state of the consumer, the fact that student loan student loans, while it won't hit your credit, you have the interest is going to start accruing this month, September, mm -hmm. which means you got to start paying back student loans. The average is almost $400 a month. And that means the $85 oil and inflation that we still have, the consumer has less money in the pocket than they did a year ago. And so $85 oil hurts more now than it did last year. And I think, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, so from an inflationary perspective, it makes me very anxious that, uh, you know, the, the, the state of the global economy is not where it was, and we have less of that stimulus. You know, we still have those drags and stimulus. So I'm sorry, that was a rant. I'd love your perspective on that. And um, we're, we're well, yeah, yeah, a, couple, a couple of things. Yeah, a couple of things. That, like the, yeah, the Saudi, 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 uh, you know, million million barrel cut uh, that exists out there, and we, it's important to, for everyone to keep that in mind that that can come back, uh, you know, at their choosing, uh, and 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 cool things um, uh, so I, I think that, that that's something important uh, i remember in uh, uh my thanksgiving was ruined in, in 2014 because i forgot yep. that opec was still existed it, it was just the shale industry from now and, uh, and they, they ruined my thanksgiving uh but um but beyond that like on the on the consumer side on the economy side yeah, yeah uh, student loans are going to be have an impact uh for repaying those uh, uh mortgage rates like it like one aspect is we credit were cards really we were so, uh, you know, uh, zero to no interest, you know, zerp, you know, zero, zero right. to no interest rates for, for so long. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, that a certificate of deposit can be, you know, I can put my money in a certificate of deposit right now and earn five and a half, six percent yeah. maybe interest. Um, you know, and that's that should be pretty safe, I think. Uh, but uh, compared to like uh, buying a, a PDP oil and gas asset for PD10. Yep. 
uh, it's like, well, hmm, which one should I, which one is safer? Like, am I paying, am I appropriately paying for risk here if I'm doing that? So now you've seen the, because of the the interest rates uh, and the, you know, trying to tamper uh, inflation with the Fed's policy there, I mean, it has caused, you know, uh, producing assets to the, the, the values of those. I mean, it's not guaranteed. It used to be almost a given. Like my, my PDP is just going to trade for PD10, uh, right. where now you see a lot of transactions, uh, you know, trading for PD15, things like that, just because you know, even if you have a mortgage, a home mortgage is, you know, 7%. Uh, but, you know, if you can find a, a bank lender that's willing to lend you uh, some money to help you acquire a PDP uh, oil or gas asset, I mean, they're probably going to charge you 8 or 9 or 10% interest, I would imagine. That's a good, uh, you know, I, I love that you pivoted on this because that's a really, that's a really good point in question. Um, um, and something I brought up that you guys, you might have a little more color on this is the, so interest rates and access that, that, that impacts obviously access capital. And so your points on these valuations, like, yes, it, it might be more valuable, but the cost of this and the risk is, is higher. But what about the, re- so the regional bank access. So I, I can say I personally, I, you know, my money this year has been in a regional bank and, um, you know, my, my business money. And that has made me, it made me anxious. So I drew that down immediately. Um, and I've kept it drawn down. I, even, even though I could get my money back if it's under, you know, $250,000, you know, limit, um, which it's, it's way under that obviously, but even though you can get your money back, it still hurts your business to not, you know, if you don't have access to that capital immediately and you need to, you know, be spending and stuff. So I, I, I do, and I've commented on this before, and, you know, if you're in Midland or anywhere else and you're, you're see, you see these regional banks, there's a lot of um, something, you know, we talk about commercial real estate exposure to regional banks, which is huge and disproportionate, but we don't talk about oil and gas. That's probably because no, nobody cares about oil and gas and it's, it's so demonized, but we don't talk about oil and gas exposure to regional banks. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, spring break of this year was was definitely interesting with, you know, Sovereign Bank and Silicon Valley Bank failing, but it, it kind of, uh, uh, for anyone that's a, a libertarian, it kind of tests your tests your views on things. Absolutely, that, you know, absolutely. The banks start failing should anything happen, and I think the federal government said, yes, we will step in and, you know, and save everyone and make them whole because we don't want that to happen, and that would be bad for, you know, <laughs> the population or politics or general things going forward. But, um, you know, there was like uh, when all the Silicon Valley bank uh, collapsed and there was, you know, liquidity issues and, you know, uh, other banks were, were, were jumping in to, uh, to make them more solvent. Uh, it did, you know, flow out to the regional banks. Uh, and you have to, you know, you have to think, and that's a, you know, a pretty, in my head, uh, where I keep my money in the bank, I, I think it's safe there. I don't. If I didn't think it was safe there, I would, you know, that would be a whole a whole other can of worms. But it is like kind of a peace of mind thing that your money is safe in the vault, whether it's there or not. But it just the mindset it is. So, um, you know, yeah, the, the regional banks have a lot of exposure to, to real estate. Uh, I, I think it's it, it, it's winnowed down just on oil and gas. I think you know uh, a lot of the companies that I know that are privately you know privately held. Uh, that have you know they they all have long-standing relationships with their you know their oil and gas lending with their banks these are 10-year 15-year 20-year relationships with their bank and you know based on production and reserves and things like that so i, I think they're they're in good shape but i think it is a smaller <coughs> universe of regional banks that are having you know you know uh, you know needle moving exposure to oil and gas Okay, that's a. I appreciate that. Um, you know, in this, uh, there's a million more questions I could I could ask you. And we could we could continue this conversation. Um, I think you've you've sort of encapsulated this pretty well. I will. The final question I guess I have for you is that, given you've sort of you 
tipped your hat a little bit in this this recession that's not coming and you know, I'm in the opposite side of that. Do you think where you're sitting and, you know, I, I'm careful with this because I, you know, I feel this run. If, if you don't feel it immediately, if you're not impacted by it and you still see activity, um, I, and I'm curious, this, especially in Texas, given that, given things are, are look like they're going so good, are, is there a, a deep sense of optimism and sort of bull, bullish market thinking in the oil industry right now from where you're sitting? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, because I, yeah, I can only have my, my perspective from my viewpoint. Uh, but yeah, I, I do. It does feel it, it feels like it's kind of uh, uh, there is there is optimism uh, more so than maybe some 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 other areas or other hard hit economic wise uh, areas of the country or the world. Uh, but it does feel you know uh, lots of you know uh, lots of A and D activity going on on a larger scale. You know, um, uh, you know companies valuations you know expanding whether maybe slower than they would like, but they are expanding. You know new funds being raised, things like that. So I think there is optimism where, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's all perspective, right? We all, in, you know, in, in 2020 and 20, even 2019, we, we all kind of stared into the abyss and scratched our head and said, you know, what's that, you know, uh, what's the, you know, from Top Gun, the original Top Gun, what's the truck driving school, you know, what's the phone number for that? Am I going to have to change industries? Right. Uh, so, so we went through that. So, you know, in comparison, you know, things are, things are relatively positive. So does it feel a little frothy? Uh, I wouldn't say frothy, but I, I mean, like a I, I feel like it's ish. No, it doesn't feel that way okay. at all to okay. me. I feel, I feel like okay. it's, I it, 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 it was like a, it was a waiting. It was like an impatience and impatience okay. and patience. Like, uh, so I feel like it, it's like kind of the impatience of uh, how things should be the how things are kind of shifting in the direction um, seem to be kind of playing out maybe as, as, as predicted for, okay. for you know, in, 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 oh. in, in yeah. my, my, my orb. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I think um, I think that's that's I, I really appreciate you giving that perspective. And and obviously I see it from I'm, I'm analyzing things from so many different angles. Right. Um, but I think it's really appreciate to see how it how it's seen in the space. Um, and I, I don't think it's it's I don't think it's viewed as frothy. I think, you know, even at that conference, I don't know if you if you were there when Harold Ham spoke and, and stuff and he was talking about how, you know, the industry was was very bullish for the next two years and they had sort of pulled back on that. And I think that that pullback was a little bit healthy. I'm not quite sure the service sector and everybody is aligned. And I think that's where uh, the education needs to happen a lot is, and I say education a little more liberally, but knowledge in the space, the service sector, the oil companies, everybody needs to be, you know, getting as much market intel as they can to navigate this. Because I think days like today, where you have $85 oil and you're looking around and things feel good, it's easy to to feel really good. And um, it also felt really good in 2007. Um, it also felt really yeah. good for most of 2008. <laughs> And, um, and yeah. the market looks, it does look a lot like that. So I, I think that's, that's a great, great perspective. and gives me a lot to chew on and, and think about in future podcasts. So, and, and it was, uh, uh, at the, the petroleum Alliance of Oklahoma, uh, conference. It's great to see someone like Harold Hamm that doesn't just fly in and fly out. He was there the whole conference Absolutely. He was there in his, in his dockers and his, you know, sleeves rolled up. I saw him, you know, uh, tasting some uh, banana pudding and commenting to his wife that it tastes really good. Banana pudding. He's like waiting in the buffet line with everybody. Just a real uh, salt of the earth guy. It's nice to be able to know people like that. Yep, I believe that was his girlfriend, and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it was he. I had him on the podcast, and he so he stuck around. Um, and then like, I mean, he's he's been second. He's now around the country on his on his book tour. Yeah, um, game in Denver, and and he's back here for this Western Energy Alliance thing. But yeah, no, he stuck around, and and it was nice. I think that uh, Western Energy Alliance is such a or sorry, a, the Petroleum Alliance of Oklahoma. Um, is such a unique organization because uh, that was a, a incredibly unique event, and so there was a massive amount of optimism around the industry. My uh, 
presentation was a little bit uh, counter to that. And it was well received, <laughs> but everybody kind of looked at me like, oh, crap. Um, so it, it was good, though. I had a blast. And I got to meet you um, here, all the, you know, a lot of folks from EnergyNet. So that was great. Yeah, well, thanks so much for, for having me on. This was a, a good conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. We'll, ha we'll have you or, or somebody in your team back as well. Okay, awesome. Okay. Thank you. All right. All right, bye.